The following one-hour conversation is a recording of the Twitter Spaces event Shedding Light on Pulmonary Fibrosis that took place on the 16th September 2021. The discussion focused on the signs and symptoms of pulmonary fibrosis, what actions can be taken when symptoms develop, and how people living with pulmonary fibrosis can find hope and community post-diagnosis. If you have any medical questions or experience any symptoms, we encourage you to address those with your doctor or licensed healthcare professional. Welcome, everybody, to our Twitter Spaces event hosted by Boehringer Ingelheim. We are here tonight to, or today, to shed light on a relatively unknown but very serious condition called pulmonary fibrosis. Um, my name is Steve Jones. I lived with pulmonary fibrosis for eight years before um, receiving a, very luckily, receiving a lung transplant five years ago. Since recovering from my operation, I've become a patient advocate and I'm the president of the European Pulmonary Fibrosis Federation, a umbrella organization of patient organizations in Europe. And I'm also chair of Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis, the charity in the UK working to support patients living with this terrible disease. Um, I've been asked to moderate the session tonight, which essentially involves me acting as a host um, and, in a, and inviting a number of really excellent speakers to um, you know, give their views on a number of important issues. Our aim today is to explain what pulmonary fibrosis is and to explore the signs and symptoms that people should be aware of. <clears throat> we will also share some thoughts on what actions people with the condition can take to live their lives as best they can. You know, how do you manage your life when you live with this condition? And finally, our panel will be sharing their thoughts on the importance of being part of a global community of people living with pulmonary fibrosis and the importance of the patient community and the support that we can all give each other. I should point out for those of you who don't know much about pulmonary fibrosis that it is a devastating disease. In Europe and North America, more people die each year from pulmonary fibrosis than leukemia. But while everybody's heard of leukemia, very few people have heard of pulmonary fibrosis. There's an urgent need to raise awareness of this cruel disease. For this event, um, our speakers, it's only our speakers who will have their microphones on. So we invite the, uh, those of you who are listening just to sit back and enjoy the discussion. So joining me on the panel today are a host of wonderful people, um, many of whom I've worked with in recent years and have become close friends. Um, I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves in a sentence or two, and I'd like to start with um, Professor Toby Mayer, please. Toby, could you introduce yourself? Uh, thanks, Steve. So I'm Toby Mayer. I'm a, uh, an academic pulmonologist uh, based now at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Uh, I do a lot of work clinically seeing patients with pulmonary fibrosis, and I also learn, run uh, a number of clinical trials, again, focused heavily on pulmonary fibrosis. Great. Thank you very much, Toby. And Bill, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, Stephen. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, my name is Bill. I'm a uh, support group leader and founder <clears throat> in Dallas, Texas. I'm an IPF patient. And as uh, many of you have heard on this call that I know and know me, <clears throat> This truly is a disease without borders, 
And I'm so happy to see uh, our friends at Berenger Ingelheim step forward and uh, bring this into the light of day. Thank, thanks, Bill. You didn't say it, but I should have said that Bill is the founder and leader of um, PF Warriors based in, da based in Dallas. Um, and Chantal, um, would you like to introduce yourself? Good evening, everyone. I am Chantal. I live in Belgium and I will speak here as a caregiver because my husband, Albert, was diagnosed with uh, pulmonary fibrosis and he finally got transplanted uh, one year ago. So this is the view I'm going to give everyone who wants to listen to that. Well, bye-bye then. See you in a minute. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Chantal. And Jim, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Jim, and I live in uh, the Texas area, and uh, I was diagnosed in 2015, and uh, I'm happily married, and uh, it was a, kind of a shock for me to get diagnosed. Uh, I, some of the things I enjoy doing is hiking, gardening, cooking, and spending time with kids and grandkids. Great. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, and Susan? Good evening, Steve and all. My name is Susan Hall. I'm, I live with a rare form of uh, pulmonary fibrosis called idiopathic pleuroparenchymal fibroelastosis. I was diagnosed at a young age of 47 um, and, and found the disease reasonably um, debilitating. Many thanks. Great. Thanks, Susan. And as you heard from Susan, there are many different kinds of pulmonary fibrosis. Um, Bill and um, Chantal's husband had what I had, which is idiopathic or unknown cause pulmonary fibrosis. Jim, I believe, has rheumatoid arthritis-associated pulmonary fibrosis. And as, as Susan explained, she has a relatively rare condition as well. So we're talking about many different types of disease that all come under the label of pulmonary fibrosis tonight. So we're very you know, lucky to have Toby with us, um, a distinguished leader of the field in ILD. Um, and I was wondered, Toby, could I ask you perhaps to kick us off by giving us some background on the condition? Yeah, what is pulmonary fibrosis? Uh, thanks, Steve. So yeah, uh, I'm pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, pulmonary is lung, fibrosis is scarring. Um, and when we think about pulmonary fibrosis, we're thinking about a scarring disorder that is, is not dissimilar to the scar tissue that we might see uh, affecting the skin. Um, and what happens is that that scar tissue makes the lungs stiffer and over time less efficient, which ultimately causes problems with breathing and in the advanced stages um, can cause respiratory failure such that people need oxygen. Um, as you've said, uh, many people with the condition have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, with idiopathic meaning we don't truly understand the cause, uh, but really over the last 15 to 20 years, we have developed a better understanding of what causes not just idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, but also other forms of pulmonary fibrosis and, and scarring disorders of the lung. And so we recognize that what happens is that um, pathways in the body that are supposed to respond to injury uh, and lead to healing become abnormally activated so that instead of healing microscopic injuries in the lung, what happens is that each, each little injury that happens following inhalation of things like dust or pollution or smoke or viruses, uh, instead of, of sort of repairing itself properly, uh, ends up in, in causing uh, a little bit of scar tissue. And 
over a period of, of several years, that will tend to build up and, and cause the symptoms that people will be familiar with, the breathlessness uh, and often the associated cough. Great. Thank you very much indeed, Toby. That's a great introduction to kick us off. The first topic for discussion um, tonight will be the signs and symptoms of pulmonary fibrosis. And I was wondering if the panelists, the patients and um, Chantal Kera on our panel could share some of their personal experiences of this. And I wondered, Bill, putting a question to you first, um, when did you, you know, thinking back to when you first experienced symptoms, when was that and what did you notice? Well, Steve, I think like uh, many patients, it snuck up on me. I, I call it a ninja disease because once you know you have it, you're on your way to uh, having problems and possibly death. I was training as a triathlete. I was in my mid-70s as a master competitor, and I was diagnosed not because I felt bad, I felt great, but my swim times kept dropping, and I went to my doctor not so much for my health as my fitness, and I ended up getting a high-resolution CT scan with a pulmonologist here in Dallas, and it was conclusive to the fact I had IPF or idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Great. And did Patty, I mean, your wife, Patty, who sadly um, can't be with us tonight, but um, did she notice it at the same time, or did she notice earlier or later or notice something different? She noticed I spent too much time running, swimming, and biking. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Thanks, thanks a lot, Bill. Um, Chantal, you think when, when, how did pulmonary fibrosis first manifest itself um, for your husband? Well, strangely enough, that was a number of years ago, and I didn't know Albert at the time, so I, I was not, you know, a, a witness uh, of, of the beginning. But he told me uh, he belonged to a cycling club, and whenever he went cycling and he made a big effort, he would faint for a few seconds and then recover, get back on the bike, and go on uh, with his rides. And his friends then said jokingly that his heart seemed to be much stronger than his lungs, uh, which, considering uh, and after all those years, I think it was an understatement. Yeah. But anyway, uh, in 2012, and that's when we were together, um, he had recurrent night sweats and fatigue. So uh, we consulted together a GP. He had a uh, chest uh, X-ray, and that was the beginning of the journey. There was something wrong with the chest X-ray, so he was referred to a local hospital to a pulmonologist, mm -hmm. and he had CT scan, lung biopsy, and uh, where there was a suspicion of uh, pulmonary fibrosis, the idiopathic. Uh, aspect was discovered somewhat later and in 2017 he had the first exacerbation of bronchitis and he was then referred to a specialist uh, hospital in, in Brussels right. and that's how everything started. Fine, thank you for that, that's, that's interesting, it's, our journeys are all very different and similar at the same time I think. I mean for me yep. um, with IPF, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, Mine started with a tickly and persistent cough. I had no other symptom, no breathlessness, nothing else. I just had this annoying cough. Um, and my GP sent me for an x-ray. And you know, within a couple of months, I was diagnosed with 
with pulmonary fibrosis. Susan, how was it for you? How did you first come to realise you were you were not fit well anymore? Or... Hi, Steve. Hi. Um, I was very similar to you, Steve, actually. Um, I had a cough, which I possibly left too long. Um, so I had a, 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 a cold around Christmas um, and, and the cough lingered and lingered and lingered. And the cough continued for seven, eight weeks. And I knew there was a problem because I met once a week with my friend um, who's a GP. And in the, after the seventh week, she said, you're absolutely still coughing. You must um, take, go to the GP. So I went to my GP um, and um, initially I was diagnosed with a, a, an asthma condition, um, and uh, the, but the cough continued. So it was essentially quite a, quite a, um, a dry cough that became debilitating in the end. Um, so the GP eventually sent me for an X-ray, which showed quite significant scarring to my lungs. Um, the other thing at the same time I noticed was actually, although I didn't really realise at the time, I was actually losing weight um, despite eating well and not exercising excessively. I had a steady weight loss, um, a, a, quite a significant weight loss over over a period of time. Um, and that's one of the features of um, my condition that's possibly not quite as similar to the other um, forms of polyfibrosis. The condition I have tends to have um, breathlessness, the, that persistent cough and weight loss. Great. No, thanks for that, Susan. Yeah, as I say, very varied journeys. Great. So, Jim, I mean, you're the star of the um, amazing podcast that BI has um, put out. Um, could you tell us, you know, describe your path to diagnosis? I mean, I believe in the podcast you called it a roller coaster ride. Can you elaborate why and how it started? Yes, I can, Stephen. Thanks. Uh, you know, I was working and doing the normal thing every day, just going to work, coming home, taking care of business. And uh, I had just gotten married and, and me and the wife would go out every evening for a walk. And uh, I used to be able to walk pretty fast and uh, I could, you know, outpace her. Well, a year or two later, I noticed sort of, you know, I couldn't keep up with her. So I started going, I started going to my doctor and I told him, you know, I, I'm having trouble. I'm wheezing and having this shortness of breath. And uh, this was years before I got an official diagnosis. And, uh, of course, he told me I was out of shape, and I was, and uh, I needed to, uh, you know, he prescribed different things. And I saw him three, four, five, six times in a matter of the two, three-year period. And finally, one day, I, I went in there, and I told him, you know, hey, I got a, I got pressure in my chest. I feel pressure in my chest, and, you know, I'm still wheezing, and, you know, I'm still coughing, and I have all these issues. And he... Uh, he took an x-ray and they found nodules on my lungs. And I really didn't know what that meant at the time. I had no clue. And uh, I got referred to a pulmonologist. And then when I went to that, uh, it wasn't a short time after I got there. He did a bronchoscopy on me. And then shortly after that, we did a HRCT and a uh, high-resolution uh, test. And uh, then we did the, uh, the, the biopsy. And it, it was a year later, and it showed mild progressions, so though they felt like they needed to go in and find, determine what was going on there. And uh, that came back with an IPF diagnosis, and uh, and you know that's kind of where it started right there. And uh, the you know I came out of there kind of positive in a way. Of course, I was devastated at first that you know I have this chronic fatal disease that's probably going to take me down if I don't do something really quick. Um, and so uh, the good news was there was something there for me to take, some medication for me to take. So I started on that, and we went on down the road, and uh, 
and, you know, the diagnosis changed again in uh, 2017 and 2018. So it was uh, those first two or three years for me was, uh, I don't know if it's a roller coaster anymore. Looking back on it, it was kind of a bumpy ride, you know. It's funny, that bumpy ride is, I've talked to a number of patients with your condition, the rheumatoid arthritis associated um, pulmonary fibrosis. And they all seem to have a bumpy ride of, or many of them, of misdiagnosis, late diagnosis, um, which is quite common across pulmonary fibrosis, actually. I mean, how long did it take you to get diagnosed, say, the first time? Uh, The very first time, the very first time getting diagnosed, uh, it took me, uh, I would say, three years, probably. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I can't really put a nail on it because I started wheezing probably in 2011. And I really didn't get a solid diagnosis till late 2014, 2015. They did the biopsy in 2014. And then three or four months later is when they started me. Uh, You know, I've seen a doctor right there at the end of 2000. Uh, 14 and 15 is when we started treatment yeah great yeah i mean in europe we just did a big survey and we found this is a european federation we found that um the average time to diagnosis was about seven or eight months but you know way over 20 a quarter of all people take more than a year to be diagnosed now you know when you've got a life expectancy of only perhaps you know three to five years that's a hell of a long time yeah so i think it's um something we really need to focus on is late diagnosis that was really great to hear those responses. Thanks, everyone. And in the next section, we want to talk a little bit about what actions can people take if they do notice symptoms. I mean, one of the problems we found in this is from a UK survey is that people um, who ultimately are diagnosed, some of them take a very long time to go to see their general practitioner, you know, their primary care doctor. Um, and that's part of the problem. We need to raise awareness of, of patients and it's recognizing the symptoms, and then as you progress with the disease, how those symptoms develop. So um, we please um, note we're not giving medical advice here. And if any listeners um, are concerned and are worried about things, they should talk to their doctor or their licensed healthcare professional. <clears throat> These are the views of patients today, um, not uh, the views of your doctor. So, Susan, um, what advice would you give to somebody who is experiencing symptoms of pulmonary fibrosis? Thanks, Steve. One of the things I would first say is a cough that continues beyond two or three weeks is probably not normal. Um, I mean, post-viral coughs can last a long time, but if a cough is not cleaving, particularly if it's non-productive, like a dry cough, then please don't leave it too long. Seek some help. Um, go to your doctor and ask for some imaging. I think. Um, I think. I think without real, without finding out what's actually happening within your lungs, it's difficult to know. Um, so one one thing: don't leave it too long. A cough that goes on beyond three weeks should be investigated. Um, and, and, and similarly, with um, if you're losing weight or something, if you're eating well and you're not exercising excessively, but your weight is dropping, you must not. That's a very serious symptom. And I would not um, I would not um, neglect that to any extent. Um, I, w- I was quite fortunate that I, I realized that that was happening and I got um, referred to a dietitian quite early on because uh, weight loss is something that's quite um, reasonably common in fibrosis pulmonary fibrosis and once you go get um, just basically too thin you become quite weak as well and it's a very very uphill struggle so monitor your weight regularly um, attend your physician if you have a cough that goes beyond three weeks um, and other than that you perhaps have to adjust your lifestyle as well um, if you know if you are diagnosed with OS pulmonary fibrosis or a similar respiratory condition 
um, you have to adjust your lifestyle. So, um, you know, for example, at the moment, I can probably walk on the flat, but I certainly can't walk and talk. Um, so I don't talk when I walk. Otherwise, I get very breathless and cough. Um, yeah. That's the advice I'd give to someone. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. And I guess um, you know, early on, though, I mean, there's when when people are first diagnosed, often, you know, they're perfectly well still, apart from having a cough or being a little bit breathless. And so for those people, you know, for a long time, they'll be able to continue to do what they've always done, but recognise that in time, <coughs> they're going to have a progression which is going to involve changing things in the way you said there. And also, when you use the word imaging, I guess you were referring to things like chest x-rays and CT scans. Is that right? Yes. Yes. A, chest, a simple chest x-ray should be able to tell you, um, give you some 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 guidance. Um, and sometimes perhaps you need a bit more detail from a, a CT scan at your local hospital. Yes. Great. OK. And Bill, what's your take on this? What do you on what people noticing symptoms should do and what they should avoid? Well, you know, I, I think the symptoms really are pretty consistent for all of us, but the path of diagnosis and then becoming a patient. And I look at them as two distinctly different things. It's very, very different. It's, I look at it like, like riding a bike down a hill. You know, some people ride the bike down the hill, they get to the bottom pretty quick. Others take a long time and others go to the bottom and, and spurts and stops and goes. I think it's the same with living with this disease. During my diagnosis, my first three years, I was still running races. I was still competing in swimming meets mm -hmm. and then it slowly started to catch up with me. And now I'm 11 years past or post diagnosis mm -hmm. and my life is adjusted to the new reality that most of us on this call are facing in some form or another. But I think the key things that was mentioned, I would echo, be alert, be aware. Mm -hmm. If you have a problem with shortness of breath, if you lose weight, if you have that cough that just doesn't want to go away, you'll immediately go to your doctor and say, here's what's going on. What do you think? And and push for that quick diagnosis because it can save your life. Yeah. What additional advice, Bill, do you think um, Patty would have had for people caring for those with pulmonary fibrosis? Having had I think her, I think her advice you. is pretty straightforward, Steve, is, 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 is finding a center, finding a like we were blessed here because in Dallas we have two ILD teaching hospitals, and so we have the the right the right mix of doctors and staff and clinicians that can diagnose us and the equipment to do it. But finding the right diagnosis, I think, is of paramount importance. And I don't see if I look around globally, I don't think the diagnostics that we have in place always serve our needs the best. So I would, if I was a patient, if I had a cough if I was losing weight, if I had a little problem here and there, I'd push, I'd push, not ask for, but I'd push for a diagnosis. Yeah, that's good, good advice. Chantal, I mean, you've looked after your husband um, with, living with pulmonary fibrosis before his lung transplant. What experience would you give to people who have a loved one and are, who's experiencing pulmonary fibrosis? Thanks, Steve. Well, certainly... Uh, I would say seek medical advice as soon as possible and go with your partner, accompany, ask as many questions as you can about the illness, about the treatment, diagnosis. And if you look for uh, information on the web, be careful, look for reali reliable sources. Um, 
in my case, it was really helpful to find as much as I could because it, it sort of helped me sort of tame the illness, adopt it. And, and that's a first step uh, for acceptance, I believe. Anyway, the start, at the start, it's always very difficult to accept for both the patient and the caregiver, I guess. Um, the future becomes uncertain. And when the symptoms develop then, and the health gradually deteriorates, it, it becomes more and more challenging. So I would say use a day-by-day -day approach because it's less daunting. Keep busy. Share your information with your family and your friends because uh, keeping things secret uh, doesn't help at all. Um, try to have fun. Adapt the physical activity, so do something together, uh, even if you have to, to walk slowly rather than fast, which was my case. Um, look around, enjoy the, you know, the sky and, and, and the woods and that kind of thing. Um, try to find some time for yourself as well. Uh, something that will relax you and keep your mind uh, well busy with something different. Uh, personally, I am an avid reader, so my, my ebook was my best friend in that case. Um, I must also say that if you, if you communicate with your partner, you become a team, and it certainly has brought us closer to do that together. And one final thing, which is very practical now, um, updating your home can be very helpful. So, for instance, that ensures safety and helps uh, autonomous living. For instance, we, we uh, adapted the bathroom so that uh, there would be more space and, and more air. And we also had a, a stair lift installed so that you could, uh, you know, uh, go upstairs without any difficulty. Well, I guess that's about it, I, I want to say. Steve, yeah. back to you. Okay, thanks. That's a pretty comprehensive list. It is interesting. I mean, I remember how yeah, my life changed from a first period of time with the disease when I could still do everything I always could, except I was coughing. Then I found I could no longer walk up steep slopes or hills. Then slowly, you can't even easily walk up the stairs in your house. Um, even walking on the flat becomes a problem. And over time, sadly, with this disease, you effectively become disabled and living at home. But although that's the nature of the disease and that's the progression we, we all go through, you can still enjoy life at all of those stages. And in the, some of the ways Chantal was saying then, you're finding things to do with your partner, changing the things that you, you do. I spent an awful lot of time when I was quite ill on the, on the internet at home, learning French again, you know, doing things just to kind of um, new, new things. So I think it's a, uh, you do have to adapt. Sorry, I'm not meant to be doing all the talking, am I? <laughs> anyway, Jim, how's your life changed since you were diagnosed? Okay, Steve, my life has changed completely. I mean, I've done, had to do a complete 360. And I come in just the opposite of Mr. Vic, Bill Vic. He was an athlete. I wasn't. I was out of shape. I was doing, I had, I drank, I, I uh, enjoyed, uh, I smoked for years. I did everything I possibly could do wrong leading up to my diagnosis. I surely wasn't no safe. Uh, what happened was when I got diagnosed, uh, I had to, one day I had to face up to the reality that 
it wasn't going to get no better unless I did something. I mean, it was on me, not the doctors. They weren't going to fix it. I had to do the best I could to take care of it. I seen my father suffer from PF, and I watched his last breath, so I knew I didn't want to go down that path. Uh, we made a pact, me and my wife, my beautiful wife, Deanna, we made a pact that we would do everything, and I would do everything we could. That The day I got the diagnosis, we made that pact. We would do everything we could to get on track. And when we got home, we changed our lifestyle completely. We tried several different nutritional diets. We ended up on a low-carb, high-fat plan, and uh, we stuck with it for three years. I went from 270 to 185. I think I weighed 183 this morning. There's nothing I don't track. I mean, if I could track, uh, if I can track it, it's on the phone or it's it's on a piece of paper at the house. I've done everything I can to improve. And actually, I have improved. This is crazy. But since my diagnosis, I honestly believe I'm in the best shape I've been in since I'm 20s. I'm wearing a 34 in the pants. When I got diagnosed, I was wearing a 48. So that's just crazy. Yeah, 48. And I was thinking about getting 50s, you know? So, I mean, that's that's the difference in me today. But as Bill stated earlier, I've had to learn to accept. And I'm really having a hard time accepting some things. But I've had to learn to accept that it's going to continue to progress. Uh, my best bet is to make sure I can keep it at bay the best I can. And I have, uh, when I first started walking, I walked 5, 10, 15, 20 miles. I, I got high, but I've had to learn that I have boundaries. If I walk too much now, then I don't get out of bed for two or three days. So I've had to, I've learned a lot. And I got to tell you, it's been a good, it's, it's bad. As crazy as it's going to sound, uh, it was a message I needed to get, or I would have been dead a lot quicker. Yeah. Great, Jim. That's great. Really well put. Um, Toby, but we talked a bit about um, how often people are misdiagnosed is how late the diagnosis often happens and how late people are referred to a, a specialist. Why is this? What's the problem with pulmonary fibrosis that makes it so slow and so difficult to diagnose? Thanks, Steve. Yes, I think that the challenge is that there are um, multiple reasons why uh, someone in older age can develop breathlessness. Um, and, and some of those reasons are more common than IPF. So probably the commonest two conditions that will present um, with breathlessness to the, the primary care physician are going to be either COPD, which is smoking-related lung disease, um, or heart disease, so ischemic heart disease, which is sort of the precursor to, to having a heart attack, can also present with breathlessness. And so for a primary care physician who's seeing a patient for the first time with breathlessness, often they will plump for one of those two possible diagnoses as the most likely cause for an individual's breathlessness. And that often means that people will go through a cycle of cardiac investigations or they will receive inhalers as a treatment for COPD. And it's only when the breathlessness continues to get worse or investigations come back as negative that the sort of penny drops and um, people consider pulmonary fibrosis uh, as a diagnosis. So I think that's the first challenge. I think the second challenge is that there are, as we discussed at the beginning of this session, um, multiple diseases that can cause pulmonary fibrosis. And 
it is important to try and distinguish between those different causes because often the treatments can be uh, subtly but importantly different. And so the, the second challenge is once somebody's been referred to a, a pulmonologist or respiratory physician, um, the, the next challenge is then working out what the cause of their pulmonary fibrosis is. And that, that can take time. It can require invasive investigations such as um, surgical lung biopsy, uh, and all of that takes time. So, so as you say, often it's, it's 12 to 18 months from the start of symptoms uh, to people being uh, fully diagnosed. That said, we're getting better at interpreting CT scans. Um, we've done a lot over the last decade to try and raise awareness. Um, so I would like to think that diagnosis is happening a bit quicker, but it, it, it still is often delayed for people. Great, thanks. That's very helpful. And when you, the question that I was going to ask you earlier when you dripped off was about, um, you heard about the, the symptoms that people on the panel talked about, you know, the things they noticed first when they, they um, started their journey in pulmonary fibrosis, if you like. Did, what, do you, I know you heard most of that. Did that resonate with you? Are those the kind of things that people say to you when you meet them early? Um, a bit of breathlessness, a bit of, uh, you know, the cough. What are the main things people come to? Yeah, and I think that, and those are the two cardinal symptoms. Um, and the challenge with the breathlessness, and I think you told your own story nicely, Steve, saying how at the beginning, you know, you, you didn't have very much in the way of symptoms. As it progressed, the breathlessness becomes more limiting. And, and the challenge is, um, as we get older, we, we, we put a lot down to getting older. Um, and I, I think initially it, it can be difficult to recognize that you're more breathless than you should be when you're exerting yourself. And many of us will put it down to lack of fitness or putting on weight. Um, I think it's really only if you're in Bill's situation and you're, you're doing sort of regular competitive exercise and you know what your own personal times are going for a, a, a 10-kilometer run or running a half marathon that you can really recognize change. I think for the majority of us who lead a more sedentary life, it, it can be very hard to identify that initial breathlessness. Uh, and it, it's often someone else who will say uh, to the person with pulmonary fibrosis, don't you think you're a little bit too breathless? Don't you think you should see a doctor? Um, often when people have a cough, that makes it slightly easier because the cough uh, will act as a trigger for people going to see a doctor a lot more quickly than than breathlessness will. Yeah, and I think that's a good message for partners of people who, you know experiencing breathlessness early on. Is you know it's a serious thing. Get it get it checked out. It might not be pulmonary fibrosis. It could be one of the other things you talked about. But it's worth getting your GP's view on early on, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think. Um, it's much better to get checked out than to let things progress to, to a point where, you know, we see irreversible limitation that we, we can't undo. So, you know, I, I think if people, I, I think the reality is if that concern enters your head, oh, I think I'm a bit more breathless than I should be, then probably there is something going on that, that merits investigation. Yeah. No, great. Thanks. Well, thanks everybody on the panel for that. The fantastic um, first two sessions that we've done. Um, we've discussed. Um, in the final part, we'd like to reflect on the role of community. I mean, as I said before at the outset, I, you know, I was part of the community before um, 
my lung transplant. I was the secretary of a pulmonary fibrosis group in the UK. But, you know, it went, um, but not much more than that, really. It was only after I had my transplant that I started I was reflecting more on it, thinking, you know, if I'd had cancer, sad, it was sad as it would have been, I would have had faster and quicker care, perhaps, than I got as, and, as um, with pulmonary fibrosis. And I saw lots of, I got to meet many patients from all over the country who were in the UK, who some of them in general hospitals were perhaps not having the same level of care as I had had as a, at an excellent um, specialist centre. So, you know, I just really became, I think the word is actually sort of enraged by, by this um, and wanted really to do something to improve the quality of life for people um, living with this disease. Um, and that's when I became an active member of the um, pulmonary fibrosis community. And that's when I also met some really amazing people, including Bill Vick. So, Bill, how did you find the pulmonary fibrosis community and how can others get involved in it? Thank you, Steve. I appreciated the generous comment. Uh, I, I think all of us in the patient community, and that includes not just us as patients, but also our families and our care partners. <clears throat> you know, Patty has this great saying, PF is a family affair. And it is. It's not just about a singular us. It's about us all. And as a patient, I struggled to kind of get my, my head and my hands wrapped around what is this disease. And I beat poor Dr. Google to death doing research, talking to pulmonologists and doctors around the world. And I was finding good answers, but not the answers I was seeking. And the answers I was seeking is what, from other patients what are the secrets and the tips they do? What are, what are they doing to live with the nausea you might get from drugs? Or what are they doing for a diet or exercise programs themselves? So I, I searched for support groups. Keeping in mind, this is my diagnosis was 10, 11 years ago. There weren't a wealth of support groups in place at that time. And so I decided here in Dallas, uh, mm -hmm. if there was no group, I was going to find one. And we did. And we, uh, after a few uh, struggling weeks of coming up with ideas and programs and, and reaching out to the few patients I could identify, uh, we had our very first meeting in Dallas. We had, I think, 105 attendees, which was a significantly large meeting at that time. And I had great support from the two hospitals in Dallas, which I think made that happen. But over time, we've constantly uh, looked for ways to better help our community, our motto is patients helping patients. And we reach out now proactively to patients, to caregivers, to families, to medical teams. What can we do to help? How can we raise awareness as a community? How can we make the journey a little easier with fewer bumps? What do we have to do collectively to make sure that our first frontline doctors, our GPs, are educated because many of them don't even see a PF patient except three or four times in their career. So how do you raise that awareness for diagnosis? And then how do you bring our collective governments and other resources to bear on funding research and getting more knowledge and communities together? And I think there's a number of institutions doing that, but I don't think anything's as strong personally is walking into a room and seeing it filled with others that are living with the same disease you are and talking to them about their journey and finding out things they're doing 
that support you and what you're doing. I think support groups are one of the, the, the golden answers in this disease. Great. I, I agree with you 100%, Bill, which is why we're friends, I think. <laughs> um, Susan, um, <coughs> how has the pulmonary fibrosis community helped you on your journey? I mean, I know you're now an active member of um, both of Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis in the UK, but also of your local support group. How has that helped you? Thanks, Steve. Like Bill, um, the local support group has helped me enormously. Um, I'm a member of a, a local specialist centres uh, support group. In fact, this year I'll be, uh, I'm vice chair and next year I possibly will go on to be chair. Um, initially, when I was first diagnosed, I didn't actually um, um, feel the benefit. Of, I, didn't, I didn't attend meetings or didn't feel I needed or wanted to, to uh, speak with other people with pulmonary fibrosis. However, as my disease progressed, as the symptoms became more um, debilitating and as my lung function declined, I really felt I needed to. So about three years into my diagnosis, I joined our local support group um, as a committee member um, and realised it was just so helpful to speak to other people, just again to get little tips and tricks as to how to manage their cough at night time or their breathlessness. Mm -hmm. Um, or just to have the support of knowing, because having pulmonary fibrosis, that um, people around you don't necessarily know what it is. Um, so when you go somewhere and you meet somebody who has it as well, it feels like you are normal for the first time um, with a very abnormal or unusual disease. Um, so it makes you feel quite normal to talk about your cough or and how debilitating it is. Um, and I found that, that great, really. Um, yeah. Why do within the UK, I'm an active member of um, uh, and the National Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis Charity. Um, and I've taken up a volunteer role there. So I actually volunteer to um, to give assistance and counselling to people throughout the country who live with end-stage lung, uh, interstitial lung disease, pulmonary fibrosis, um, on oxygen. And that gives them enormous support, particularly during this current pandemic when they were shielding and um, at home. Um, more recently, as, as my condition has progressed, um, I'm now in a lung transplant pathway and so I've joined a lung transplant support group for patients, particularly with pulmonary fibrosis. And that's been enormously helpful. I can speak to people both pre um, and post lung transplant to find out about um, to find out all the the, the, the steps in, in the journey. Um, the pros and the cons to make a really informed decision, which is really helpful when I go to my clinic appointments. So overall, um, both of those three groups that are members of organisations have been immensely helpful um, and supportive. And they kind of make you feel normal when you're living with a very um, unusual um, lung disease. No, that's, that's great. Your idea of the first time you went to the sport group, I mean, that resonates with me. I, I was a bit reluctant to go and I remember walking in and being very shy and scared of meeting a lot of people who are worse than me and, you know, the kind of things that go through your mind. Um, but I just got was blown away by the laughter and the positivity in the room. And it was so lovely to be in a room where everybody understood what I was going through. It was liberating, really. So, Jim, for you, what was so good about joining a support group? Uh, joining a support group has probably been the best thing that's come out of the whole deal for me. I've made friends from all over, and uh, it's, just been, uh, it's just been really unbelievable for me uh i like uh, i know bill and uh i've been part of some of his meetings and some of his groups and uh and i like to thank uh bi for putting this stuff on i mean 
the webinars, the videos, uh, the social media campaigns, everything that's, if you was a guy like me that was shocked and I was scared when I walked in the first time too, but I mean, it was, I was welcomed with such open arms. I can only look back and re- remember the patience they had to have with me because I was really a mess and, uh, they really guided me along. Uh, I think one of the biggest things I got out of support groups is I learned that I had to be my own advocate and I had to advocate for my own health and I had to take charge of my own health. Uh, so it's been inspiring for me. I don't know any other way to put it, uh, being part of the group, uh, you go, you ride with the waves, ups and downs. Some people are there, and you, you lose some, you, you, some get transplants, and all, you're just part of the community. And when I first started, I mean, there was only a couple of little things going on there, and then the next thing you know, it just blew up. So I feel really blessed. It's, it's like, once again, the stranger the sound, I feel really blessed that, you know, it's taken off like it has because a lot of people, my dad had pulmonary fibrosis. And it wasn't there for him. Uh, a lot of this wasn't there for him. So I feel like, you know, it, you know, his doctors didn't know. And he didn't know to fight for himself. And I didn't know. So I've learned to fight for myself and to fight for others, too, and try to represent and then also go out there and do my, my best you can to uh, raise awareness. So it's been a really it's been a life changing thing for me. I just don't know how to say it. Great. Thanks, Jim. That's really, really interesting and very helpful. Um. Bill, um, how has pulmonary fibrosis community supported your wife, Patty, as a carer? And you know, how do you set out to support other carers? Because so, we tend well, to focus I, I a wish, lot on the patient, don't we? Steve, I, I wish Patty was here to express it because she could probably say it far more eloquently than I can. But, you know, we, her, her concept that this is a family affair rings true. Support groups are families. And just because I'm in Dallas doesn't mean I don't have good friends at Brompton, like Tony, or that I don't have good friends elsewhere in the world that are patients. The patient community globally is giving and strong and helps each other in many, many, many ways. But I think the thing that I've seen happen here in Dallas, our group is called the PF Warriors. And we always love to network with others, and it's pfwarriors.com. We welcome your participation. But the thing that I see is that people kind of rise up in an organization that's a volunteer-based one like ours and, and many of those on this call, and they, they find new strengths. I tell people, and not, not kiddingly when I say this, maybe getting PF was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because all of a sudden, my marriage is better. My my children actually listen to me a little more frequently than they used to. And, if, and there are some things there that you just can't put into words that are positive. Mm-hmm. I think support groups are one of the keys. And I wish that we could find a way mm-hmm. for the institutions globally to become more attuned to the value that support groups bring to them. Mm-hmm. Because we're the ones that people turn to for questions that we answer on living. And living is what this disease is all about. So, Steve, you do that with both the EUIPFF and also with the Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis. And it's a good example to follow. But I think you recognize, as well as anybody, this is a global event. This is a disease without borders. It doesn't care if you're big, small black, purple, or whatever, it cares that you have the disease. 
we support each other. We are all patients helping patients in some way. And I think I've been blessed in this journey to become part of this community. Yeah. No, I share that feeling as well, Bill. In a way, it is um, patient supporting patient and you know, carers, but it's beyond that as well. We have a, there's, I think, I think of the pulmonary fibrosis community being wider than patients and carers and including, you know, physicians like Toby, um, you know, pharmaceutical companies like BI. You know, we're all working together towards common goals in the short term of medium term of supporting patients, but in the long term, fostering you know, research and um, to find a cure for this dreadful disease. And I think it's that way we all work together. We're blessed with having some really amazing people um, among the clinicians, researchers and pharma companies um, Steve, working would, with would, us as patients and carers. Steve, would you say that if you put the final analysis down there's a four-letter word that kind of defines what we do. And that four letters is H-O-P-E, hope. Don't we all collectively give hope to others? Don't we give them a place to focus there and, and learn and become hopeful and live a better life because of it? I think support groups are one of the keys to living with this disease, if not the key. Yeah. And you can't underestimate that, the importance of hope. I think it's a really, really good point. Um, Chantal, um, not quite finally, because I'm going to come back to you as well, Toby, in a minute and think about um, your research for the future. Um, but Chantal, what is it that you've um, found inspiring about the pulmonary fibrosis community? Actually, my, my experience is very similar to those that have been explained a minute ago. Uh, definitely, Albert and I, we joined the local IPF support group at the beginning of his illness. Uh, we made an effort, really, because at first we were afraid it would be sad and dispiriting, and we found out that they were, uh, well, it, it was great fun. We met extraordinary people, we met friends, and that, well, that was great. We learned a lot as well, and and uh, the idea for Albert and me, well, for Albert and I, sorry, uh, the idea was to... Um, to help others and to, you know, to raise awareness and to to do something positive out of this uh, of this illness, uh, I must say that it also helps me to talk about my doubts and my fears with people who understand that, and to complain about my husband with a friend whose husband has the same problems. You know, that's a great help, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, we Albert keeps regularly in touch with transplanted patients and they talk and talk and talk on the phone and extending, did you feel this? And and how about that? And uh, how did how did it happen? And they they sort of you know share good and not so good news and tips and such. And uh, well, I, I think it's it's extremely positive and I have so many more friends than I used to have before. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think many of the um, organizations now are encouraging carers groups as well. You know, we have patient support groups which generally include patients and carers, family members together. And Susan mentioned a transplant patient support group, you know, specific to transplant patients. We also have a number of carer support groups coming up. And I think that's really important for the reasons you said, you know, enabling patients to talk to each other, carers rather, to talk to each other about their, their spouses um, to talk about the problems they're going through, the tensions they're feeling. Uh, it's, so, it's so good that we're beginning to recognise that. Okay, Toby, finally, 
We talked about hope. And I think one of the main areas of hope that when all the patients I talk to is around research. And patients know that the research will come too late for them, but they're desperate that a cure is found for pulmonary fibrosis so that you know, the people coming after them um, don't have to suffer in the way that they have. What do you think the world will look like in 10 years' time for, for pulmonary fibrosis patients? How will it change? That's a very big question, Steve. Um, <laughs> You've got three, three minutes, don't we? <laughs> three minutes. Uh, so I, I, I'm certain it will change for the better. Um, I, I think if we look back over the last 10 years, uh, we've seen huge advances. Um, 10 years ago, we didn't have any treatments for any form of pulmonary fibrosis. And, um, you know, the, there has been a huge acceleration in the number of clinical trials running in pulmonary fibrosis in the last 20 years. So the first big international multicenter trial was only really started in 1999. So we've only been doing clinical trials in IPF for the last 20 years. And in the first decade, less than a 1,000 people around the world participated in IPF clinical trials now we're at a point where probably more than a 1,000 people a year are participating in, in trials of new drugs for pulmonary fibrosis. And so it's to be hoped that these much larger efforts uh, will lead over the next few years to, to multiple more treatment options for people with pulmonary fibrosis. And I, I think part of the, the drug discovery has been understanding the disease better um, we better understand what causes it, but we also better understand how to diagnose it, how to interpret CT scans, how to use um, things like spirometry to measure how effective the lung is, and increasingly using things like spirometry at home as a way of, of monitoring people in real time. Uh, and all of that has fed into better clinical trial designs it's also led us to recognize that there are probably multiple different ways of, of treating pulmonary fibrosis, and that's why we've seen this huge expansion in clinical trials. Um, but I, I'm sure, as, as everybody on this call will recognize, we're all built slightly differently. Uh, everybody's pulmonary fibrosis um, affects them slightly differently, and at the molecular level, um, often there are subtle differences in in the molecular pathways that drive one person's fibrosis compared to another. And we've seen a lot of success in the oncology field in treating cancer by better understanding the molecular mechanisms that, that cause cancer. And so a lot of the effort that's going on is to try and do the same for pulmonary fibrosis to see if we can identify the individual uh, and individual's own pattern of disease so that we can select the best treatment for them and we'll be able to give much more tailored treatment advice for individuals. And I think that really fits with what you've been saying about support groups. Really what we're trying to move to is, is, is personalized bespoke advice rather than uh, one size fits all, which often works quite well but doesn't always work for everybody. That's great. But a one word summary, as Bill said earlier, is hope. You know, we've, yeah, we've got a lot of hope now in the future as a result of all the research and trials that are going on now, yeah? Good. Yeah, well, there's been a huge growth in research effort. Yeah, Sorry. Great. There we go. Not at all, Toby. Thanks. Definitely hope. Thanks very much for that, yeah. So, folks, that's all we've got time for today. Um, I'd like to thank everyone on our panel for joining us 
and for sharing your thoughts and your experiences with this audience. I haven't been told how many we've got listening, but I think there are very many. Um, and for those who would like to learn more about pulmonary fibrosis and to connect to resources to help you or a loved one, you can visit um, lifewithpulmonaryfibrosis.com, which I, is a BI website. Um, you can also reference available resources from on the Action for Pulmonary Fibrosis website, the EU, <coughs> excuse me, the EU IPFF or European Federation website, and also PF Warriors and the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation in the US. Um, you can also listen and subscribe to the Journeys Through Pulmonary Fibrosis podcast, and you can find that wherever you normally find your podcasts. And so that's about it. We've got a minute left. And I'd like just to thank everybody for joining today. We hope everybody who's been listening has enjoyed the talk and found it useful. You can always get in touch with us through our various organizations. And we hope you have a, a lovely rest of the day, wherever you are in the world. Thanks very much, everybody, for coming tonight. Or oh, sorry, it's tonight where I am coming today. Bye bye. <laughs>